Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Today, my guest is Jim Comey, who I think fits perfectly with the type of people that we like to have on the show. For those of you who read the Substack, you know that I'm writing about sort of the big economic, political, historical forces. And then in the podcast, speaking with people who are going through them, who have had major disruptions in their life and the lessons they learned from that. I'll tell you ahead of time, I didn't ask the questions that you could get ready answers to on Wikipedia about his early life, his education. Those things are known. I just wanted to get a sense of how he's doing. What lessons has he learned from this unbelievable journey he's been on? And I have to tell you, the lesson that we share at the end of the podcast still has me thinking. So with that, enjoy. Let's just start at the high level. So since we last spoke in person, Man, you have been through just an unbelievable up and down and up. So just stepping back, like, how are you doing? What is your perspective on this journey? I would have, my, my, my sense would be you're kind of at a place that few outsiders are going to be able to appreciate because the experience is so unique on so many different levels. And at the same point, you saw the same day-to-day stuff, you know, your dad, your husband, your grandparent, et cetera. So Take us through a little bit what the mindset is like day to day if you look back on this whole period. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's great to be with you and to hear your voice and remember our times together. I remember them fondly. I, it's, it seems like a lifetime ago we worked together. It does. And sometimes, and sometimes it seems like what happened since I left Bridgewater happened to somebody else. I didn't, I didn't expect to be FBI director was surprised when I was asked to come and speak to President Obama about it and love turned out to love the job and didn't expect to get fired, which is part of what made getting fired a little bit vertigo inducing because I knew that Donald Trump didn't like me and I thought that was a good thing because that, right. that coldness was a, a cold front that kept us apart and I thought that's healthy. It's okay that the guy can't stand me. And I'm supervising the Russia investigation, so it's kind of job security in a way. And so being fired while I was out in L.A. and learning about it on TV from a silent news show on a screen behind my folks was like being pushed off a bullet train. And then you're standing on the platform and all that's left is sort of the trash from the platform being sucked up the tunnel by the Mm. vacuum created by the train's departure. Mm. It was weird. And took me a long time to adjust to no longer being director and took me a while to figure out, so what do I want to do? How can I still be useful? It's been easier than people might imagine. People, people often think it must be deeply traumatic. And the truth is it's not. And I think mostly because when it happened to me, I was a grown up surrounded by a really great centering network of family, especially. Mm who cared a lot about me, but not that much, and made me laugh, laughed at me. And with their help, I figured out ways to be useful, teaching and writing. And then the last thing I learned to do is don't close the window entirely. The challenge of places like Twitter is it offers an insight into the human condition that used to be reserved for law enforcement, the clergy, and mental health professionals. And so there's a tendency to want to shut it all out, just close the window. 
And I've learned not to do that entirely, to try and find a way to keep the window cracked so that thoughtful critique and thoughtful feedback can make it through. But I shut out the noise and I never read Twitter comments. I'm not active on Twitter at all since the, the inauguration, but I managed to keep a lot of it from living rent free in my head and still not, not be in denial about important questions about decisions I made or hard issues. And that somehow I struck that balance. And so my summary is it's not been as hard as people might imagine, but it wasn't easy. And the last thing I'll say is I, I underweighted how hard it would be for my family mm. because they don't close the window to a crack. They see comments and hear from people and see nastiness. And they've had to deal with security threats to me that, that I kind of shrug off, that linger, the worries linger with them. And so that's been a burden that I should have appreciated more. They're fine, makes me all the more grateful for their help, but I, I wish I had been more attentive, a little more attentive to that over the last five years. But let's talk about the family thing a little bit more. Can you say more about that in terms of just being hard on them? In other words, it's like you took on a different kind of bizarre identity in the public eye that had I I never would have, I could have imagined, like the fact that you became FBI director, fact, it didn't surprise me that much. Not that, <laughs> not that I'm good at forecasting things, but what it was now, so I was like, oh, I could see that happening. But talk more about, you know, the, the impact on them, on the family. Yeah, I, as I said, I managed to close the window nearly all the way so I don't hear the noise and the, the haters. It's, much harder for my family to do that because they're hearing sort of ricochets of it through their own social media environments, through friends, people asking, how's your dad doing? And their, their reaction is, geez, he seems fine, which he really, <laughs> but, it, but it's all of those questions and also some of the security steps we had to take because they were crazy, still are, but far more crazies in the year or so after I spoke about Donald Trump. And so having that weigh on them, when you spend a life, most of my career in law enforcement, those considerations don't beat you down. But when you're new to it, it, it takes on an outsized importance when your dad is advising you, look, make sure you're altering your roots. Make sure you're being aware of the red zones when you get close to work, close to home, who's around. And, and those things come naturally to me. But when you lay them on your family, it's a burden for them. And I look, and part of the, I'm responsible for increasing that burden in a way because I decided that I couldn't remain silent. They right. wouldn't be able to look in the mirror if I didn't. And so I didn't want to be a public figure in that sense. I never wanted to run for office. Fame was never one of my goals. But I felt like if I go and hide someplace, I should be ashamed of myself. And so I decided I'll testify publicly which was surreal, and I will speak, and I'll write a book, and I will talk about the threat to our institutions that, that the Trumpists pose. And that, in, so I intentionally kept my profile high, right. which brings the, continues the burden on them. And so, look, they're, they're great kids. My, you know, a significant part of my family's in law enforcement, and so they're fine. But I, I'll tell you when it hit me, I watched, talk about an out-of-body experience, the movie, The Comey Rule, uh -huh. and, which my kids took solace in the fact that it was only going to be on Showtime. They told themselves and me that none of my friends are going to watch it because on Showtime. Well, then in September, it moved to Netflix, where it's now right. a part thing on Netflix. 
And the first time I watched that full movie, I got very emotional at parts that I didn't expect to get emotional. And they were the ones where the director and screenwriter captured the pain my family was feeling for me and about me. And that's when it hit me that, you know, dude, selfishly, you didn't fully consider how this was landing on those closest to you. And that was a miss. So in preparation for this, we watched some of that. And my wife said, tell him he's much better looking than that actor that's portraying him. (laughs) And taller. She goes, I've met him. He goes, he doesn't look anything like that guy. I, I met Jeff Daniels once. I visited the set one time, one day, went up to Toronto and happened to be the day just by accident, they were filming the private dinner scene between me and Trump. And they did it so close to the way it actually happened that it, I told them it ruined my day. But I, I said to Jeff Daniels, hey man, can you act a little bit taller? <laughs> he said, I'm doing the best I can. I've got two inch lifts in my shoes. I can't get any farther. The, uh, yeah, I didn't think about the the security element, which obviously in this country, there's an un, you know a very tragic history of violence to public figures. It's certainly different than the other countries that I've studied. As a president or somebody like that, they are afforded a degree of security, right? But then you leave and that's up to you to basically figure out. Yep. The government covers you for a transition period, which is uh, really brief, and then you're on your own. And yeah, and, and think about lying. I'm sure we'll talk about this, but lying works, especially when it's the president of the United States lying. And so there are millions, I was going to say thousands, but there are millions of Americans who believe and will go to the yes. deathbed believing that I was the leader of a deep state effort to, to mount a coup against Donald Trump. And so if you honestly believe that, right, it's a small step to seeing that person as a threat to all you hold dear. It is terrifying, and being in the, the light of fire in that way must be extremely concerning. I didn't get much about your upbringing in the sense that, you know, strong family, mom and dad, your grandfather, if I got it right, was a cop in the, he rose to be commissioner of the New York City Police Department. Is that right? Yonkers, New York Police Department. Yonkers Police Department. Okay. Say more about that period of time. I mean, you, it just seems like a pretty ordinary upbringing, but was there anything at that period of time that you think played a real bearing on, on what came next or what you got from mom or dad or religious background or anything like that? It was a wonderful upbringing that my parents, they were both college graduates. My mom, worked um, and at the time she met my dad. My dad had studied to be a Catholic priest and came within a year of ordination before he, as he used to say, went over the wall. <laughs> I remember at 15 when I was struggling with Catholicism, I asked him, you know, dad, why did you not become a priest? And I thought he was gonna give me some layered theological answer. And he said, girls, I just couldn't imagine life without girls. and." And that's the only reason. <laughs> and so it, we were, they were a traditional family. My mom stayed home until the last of us, there were four of us, I was the second oldest, went off to college. And my dad worked sort of his way up. He used to say his goal was to be upper middle class. And before he retired, he said, I'm pretty sure we're lower upper middle class now. I lived in a <laughs> Small house in Yonkers, New York, tightly packed together houses. Then my dad got a different job in northern New Jersey, and we lived in a 1,600-square-foot ranch house in Bergen County. And I had a wonderful, happy childhood. My parents built an environment where 
we sat at dinner together, all six of us, and talked and laughed. And we went on, even though we didn't have much money, we always went, which I thought was exotic, to the uh, fair shores of the Long Island Sound in Milford, Connecticut. Sure. I thought it was the Caribbean beach at that point and rented a tiny little house a block or two back from the, the beach. And I just remember my childhood as playing and running and studying and laughing. And my parents, my dad was a disciplinarian, the disciplinarian in the family. He was a very, but dad was an interesting mix. He was a very confident person in some respects. In my view, overconfident. Huh. I remember the kids sitting in a dark movie theater in Yonkers, New York, South Yonkers, so right near the Bronx border. And some guys were talking two rows behind us during the movie. So without knowing who it is, my father says, hey, shut up. And that was my father. And I, I remember thinking, you don't even know who these people are. What are you doing? Right. He was a tough guy in a lot of ways, but also the reason I hesitated in describing him, kind of a softy. My mother was, I would say, probably more, more layered, more philosophical, more of a reader than my dad. Huh. And among my fondest memories were coming home during high school and sitting and just talking to my mother about what was going on, what things I saw, ideas I had. And, and so I was very lucky to have them as parents. They were stricter in a way than I am as a parent. Corporal punishment was part of my upbringing from my father. Uh -huh. and, and they were, the big thing in my house was character. Hmm. And, and that you are different. And that you will stand out. And I remember repeating back to my mother when I got in trouble at the age of eight that I, I will be a great man someday. And it didn't matter to them what we did. My hmm. sister, my three, my two brothers and I but you had to do something to make a difference and you had to resist the crowd. And I, my parents woke us up every day, and God, it was so annoying, snapping the shades up and saying, time to rise and shine and show the world what you're made of. Over and over and over again. Wow. It was about resisting the crowd, about being different, that you will be the character is everything. And, and that was a, Look, having raised now five kids and seeing grandchildren, I don't know what part of me is that nurture, what part was nature, but it, I, I look back on my childhood with a sense that integrity and character, doing the right thing at all times, no matter the cost, was actually sometimes literally beaten into me, but certainly uh, in a metaphorical sense, beaten into me. Wow. What was that like if you ever straight? I mean, that is an intense interior voice to always be growing up with. And particularly, I'm trying to, I think you're you're older than me, but you're not that much older than me. There was a lot of tumult going around and experimentation, et cetera. And you must have been, I'm imagining, quite distant from all of that. Yeah, I was a good kid. I didn't, and I've still never smoked pot. I'm hoping it'll be legalized federally so that I can smoke pot. But I, I was a good kid. I was rebellious in some ways. I misbehaved. I often was um, a smart ass in school. Uh -huh. Trouble for that. I sometimes led my brothers on adventures that were uh, that got us in trouble. Justifiably, when my father would take the belt uh, to our rear ends, uh, he would start with me, and normally that was 
I don't, I don't, I've never treated my children that way, but in his view of the world, that was the right way to punish the rebellious. I got far more wax than my brothers and I think I deserved it. I mean, I can remember in fifth grade, not real bright, but uh, we lived in an apartment building at that point uh, in Yonkers and I found a gigantic block of chalk and so dropped it off of our third floor balcony. So it shattered down below on the sidewalk, then led my brothers down where I think I spelled better than they, where I wrote curse words on the sidewalk. It wasn't hard to solve that crime. <laughs> and I paid for that crime. And so I was someone who was closely disciplined and supervised, but also a bit of a smart ass and a bit rebellious. Uh-huh. And I, like, I struggled with Catholicism and constantly challenged my parents. They sent me to a retreat one weekend for Catholic high school youth and I escaped out a window and just walked around and my parents found out that I had done that. I was in, also in big trouble, but I, so I was both on the straight and narrow and wandering off of it. But almost like the ways you were winding off of it, maybe not so much throwing the chalk off the building, but the other way it's defining it. It's, it's within the character. It's just within the framework seems to me just hearing it in terms of character and independence as opposed to in some sort of more idealistic way. I think that's right. And it was really important to them that I admit what I had done. Right? You were still going to get punished, but you will tell the truth. And I, and I can't overstate the power of this. You will be different from yes. the rest of them. You will be different from the crowd. And how you are is totally up to you, but you will not go along. And, and I have wrote this in one of my books that my mother over and over and over again would say, if people are getting in line to jump off the George Washington Bridge, are you just going to get in that line? And that I can hear her saying that constantly in my memory of my childhood. And so it was a bit of a obsession with me as I look back. I gave a speech at my college, my high school graduation, condemning peer pressure. And I don't think my classmates even understood what I was talking about. <laughs> but, but parents would come up to me in the supermarket and say, hey, I really enjoyed that speech. I think that's an important message. And so it was that you need to stand apart from the crowd. I carried in high school the, the uh, Emerson quote about that it's easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It's easy in solitude to live after one's own. But the great person is the one who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. Right. And I don't need to carry that anymore because I memorized it when I was 15. And so that's a bit weird, but also kind of wonderful now looking back from the age of, what am I, I'm 60 now. And there's a real tension too, I would imagine, between very strong, say, Christian edicts towards humility and also standing out from the crowd because sometimes it requires, and I think this is true for a lot of the people that have studied an interview too, you need an ego to do hard things, to stand up after getting knocked down. And simultaneously, you need a lot of humility because we all have blinders on us, we know. Yeah, and most of my growth has come in trying to achieve a better balance between that, as I learned at Bridgewater, the assertiveness and open-mindedness, that I, I did not have enough humility as a younger person. And I met my wife in college, that she helped me a lot to achieve a better balance. But I, I would say my journey in life has be, been becoming less confident, less certain, learning to trust only those who doubt. And, and that's been an important journey. I was out of balance as a 
high school senior. I, I knew what the answer was. Screw you, you bunch of lemmings. And yeah, and it took me, a, it, it's, I'm still working on my balance, but big part of my journey, especially in my late teens and 20s was finding a healthier balance. talked a lot about you know college law school that your initial work as a, a prosecutor the thing that struck me in the work in the, in the, as you describe it was obviously incredibly noble as, as you know I spent time living in Russia having seen a place that was literally taken over by gangsters I think a lot of Americans appreciate it as something that makes for good TV but gangsters are really really scary people and so this is very noble work very important work at the same time Reading it, it seemed to me less a world of grays in the sense that it's it's like a very sharp relief of good versus evil type of thing. Is, is that what it felt like? Do you think now with the benefit of time, when you look at it, do you think that that's true or or is your perspective on it different? How did that form who you are? Yeah, the work as a federal prosecutor has far less gray in it than my work in the private sector. And it's one of the things I loved about it because there shouldn't be much gray. Your obligation is to try to do the right thing every day, to remember who your client is, to not care about winning and losing, but to try to let law and facts drive you. And so there shouldn't be much fuzz on that, shouldn't be much gray. I, as a defense lawyer, I found that very, very difficult and harder than being a prosecutor because it requires you to live in a, in a grayer zone. I'd say maybe what I've learned as I've gotten older is just to doubt the ability of all of us, including myself, to see facts clearly and to resist the cognitive biases that are such an awesome <laughs> and terrifying feature of human experience. Yes. I trust our criminal, I've come to see our criminal justice system more clearly in that way. I always thought it was imperfect, but I see its imperfections even more clearly the more I've learned about how it works and how people work. There's little tidbits of that early on in the book. In other words, you're describing, on the one hand, you're prosecuting a lot of times these terrible people, but there were these errors in police work that you talk about and having to describe the judge with the cash being moved and things. It sounded to me like a lot of organizations that I've been a part of on the outside, they seem like one thing, but then once you really get in there, there's a lot of messiness there. It sounds like that's as much a feature of police work as it is of any other type of organization. Oh, definitely. I mean, the justice system is wonderful, except it's run by people. <laughs> who make mistakes, who get tired, who get angry, who don't even realize that they're narrowing their vision uh, in an important case that excludes evidence that would show them the person they're looking at is not guilty. And it's And so the more you get to know people, the more you are you appreciate, I do, the design of our, our justice system, which is designed to crash interests against interest, sort of the genius behind our political system. But, but at the same time, your sense that within that extremely well-designed system are deeply flawed people that test and design constantly, that should be something you learn pretty early on if you're going to be an effective investigator or prosecutor. And I think my experiences did and helped me there. I was always frightened by people who were certain they were right when it came to investigations or prosecutions, because how can you ever be certain of nearly anything? But yeah, I mean, my doubt about everything has grown as I've gotten older and probably when I'm an older fart, it'll be even deeper than it is today. 
But I think we have a wonderful system. I also think it's deeply flawed because of who operates it. Do you feel like the feedback mechanism in law enforcement is as fast as it is in other professions? As an investor, obviously, you get lots of things wrong, but you see it. You thought something was going to go up. You put your money on it, it goes down. And that humility, you get your teeth kicked in. Is it as fast in law enforcement? Because it, it, from the outside, it feels like it's slower. In other words, now we realize what was going on with Martin Luther King was wicked, but it feels like at the time there could be a lot of momentum. Or am I, or am I wrong on that? No, you're right. I think it's you're right for two related reasons. First, unlike investing in law enforcement, there is no unblinking eye staring mm. at the work that's going to judge it almost in real time. That is, you can... You may be wrong about a case, but it never gets adjudicated either in a court of law or in some administrative mechanism. And so you never you never get told you were wrong. And second, there's an ability, maybe because of that, which is why the reasons are related, to convince yourself that you were right. Right. Errors tend to happen in my experience, fundamental errors, miscarriages of justice, most often in the highest stakes cases cases involving horrific acts of violence, in particular against children, sexual assaults, these kinds of things, because the investigators want so badly to solve the crime. And so brought to bear in that circumstance are all their cognitive biases and they their confirmation bias drives them to be certain of a particular result and it becomes unshakable. And so if there isn't, even in that circumstance where the court, there's an adjudication, there's, there's a blinking eye, but eventually sees and says, no, this person is innocent. I know plenty of investigators and prosecutors who live the rest of their lives thinking that court was wrong. I wasn't wrong. I had it right. This guy really was the killer. Yes, I know somebody else confessed to it and DNA and whatnot, but it's this unshakable wrongness that is the plague of prominent feature, a plague in my experience of, of humanity. That is the second is the second reason you don't get the you don't have the unblinking eye judging you right away. Even if you get looked at, you have this ability not to surrender. Let's talk about more of you know the current era. If I if I sort of step back and I look at your journey, when you describe your childhood growing up, it seems almost what I would describe as. 1950s. And then the informational world that you and I grew up with, I remember trying to explain this to people that were younger, the cadence of the information we got. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and the iconic sources of information were the Washington Post, which I delivered, and Walter Cronkite. Now, particularly the world that we occupy, the one that you were in the epicenter of that, it seems wildly disorienting because it doesn't feel like there's this grounding a, do you think that's true? And B, what's your diagnosis of what that might be due to? There's no doubt it's disorienting. I, You're right in the way you described how I got information as a kid and how disorienting it is to have it coming from an infinite number of directions today. Everyone's got a voice. It's, it's uh, chaotic. But I, my take on it is, like, I think despite the fact that I know how much everything sucks, I remain an optimist. I can't figure out how. <laughs> I, that's, that's clear in your books. I think it's kind of wonderful. And that that a view of a war like the Vietnam War is not owned by two newspapers and three networks. It can belong to all of us in a way, but we can also all be fooled about it 
in a way. And so how does that net out? I read a book recently by a guy named Jonathan Rausch at Brookings called The Constitution of Knowledge. And it's thoroughly depressing and ultimately uplifting because he paints a picture as you did of, God, we're totally screwed up. In the, you can't, how do you find truth? How do you find signal in all this noise? And he says, we've been here before. And he talks about the time, right? shortly after the printing press was invented. So there's all kinds of disinformation and because it was printed, people believed it. And we struggle with how are we gonna deal with this? How are we gonna find truth? And we ultimately did. And one thing he said that has stuck with me, wrote is, he said, if you were asked to place a bet as an investor on two competing enterprises in the late 1990s, one was a Microsoft driven where Microsoft was gonna spend millions of dollars to hire the world's experts to write Encarta the greatest encyclopedia ever, and then it would be distributed in a digital form then on, on CD-ROMs. Or this idea that we're gonna have people just volunteer to write about stuff and we'll put it online and we'll let people edit each other's work. Which one of these would you have bet on? He said, most of us would have bet on Microsoft. Microsoft pulled the plug and got beaten to death by Wikipedia. And how did that happen? He said, because we found a way as with the criminal justice system, to have a collision of viewpoints get us to an approximation of what is true, never, never static, always changing, but reliably to a place where we could say, aha, that is true. And he said, he said, we've only, we're only 20 some years into this chaotic era. It took, I forget his estimation, 200 to straighten ourselves out after the printing press. We will get to a place where we design our systems and our platforms much closer to a Wikipedia model than to where we exist today, where Facebook is, is distributing information based on their anger algorithm. And he said, and so it's just the human desire for truth is so powerful. And we have this model that we've used since the age of enlightenment and it will save us. I think he's probably right. Maybe he's not. Hubert probably also, it feels like fairness is also innate. Too. Yeah, I think that's right. People have a very, very strong sense of fairness. They remember, they remember when something was unfair. And if there's truth and fairness are kind of innate, then that would be a beacon. I think that's right. I teach at Columbia out of the really amazing book by the moral psychologist from NYU, Jonathan Haidt, uh, called The Righteous Mind. And Haidt's theory of moral foundations resonates with me. His research shows that all humans have taste receptors, moral taste receptors, and we're sensitive in different degrees, the way we are in different actual tastes on our tongue. And he makes a compelling case that all of us resonate with that fairness, especially a procedural fairness. We don't like people getting cheated. We don't like something being rigged. And that's just a part, that's an innate part of humans. It's actually not part of our cognitive capacity we've evolved in recent years. That's a part of the human experience since before we were humans. And that, that consoles me. With that in mind, then what do you make of, as a formerly registered Republican, like what do you make is going on with the Republican Party? I stare at it and I get the thing that if you're an elected official and you see the Trump polls well and you want to get reelected, you would do this. But to your the values that you were brought up with, I look at somebody like Cheney standing up saying, no, we need a proper investigation and how much pressure she's put on I mean, it, from the outside, it just seems so dysfunctional. And it does remind me, actually, of like high school bullying. Like she's a person saying, getting up and saying, no, we're not going to run the yearbook that way. And then the people are sort of trying to, it's, the stakes are obviously much higher. It's almost a trite example, but it's brutal. What, what is going on 
a big part of our population has been radicalized. And there was a piece in the New York Times earlier this year by a former CIA uh, counterinsurgency expert named Bob Grenier, who I knew a little bit. And he says, we really have to think about it through the framework of counterinsurgency, the way we thought about the Islamic State and Al Qaeda, because our leadership has spent years lying to people about things that touch their identity. And once you get people to associate their identity with an untruth, you have a you have this incredible bind, because right, forget about identity. What's the thing we all do least well? Admit we're wrong. Well, right. if, if we're wrong about something because that touches our identity, it's even harder. If we're wrong about something that touches our identity because we were defrauded, it's nearly impossible to get people to emerge quickly from that fog. And so lying works. Millions of Americans have been radicalized by these lies that they've internalized. And the Republican Party is led by a bunch of, you know, microscopic, you know, these moral microscope people. They're, they're inches tall. They're just trying to save their jobs. And they know, in their view, all these people are rubes and they've been fooled. How do I keep this job that I get paid $174,000 a year for, which is the best job I've ever had, and people kiss my butt all day long. And so they're just weather veining. The challenge for us as a country is, how do we help those millions of people emerge from that, the fog? of a charismatic liar who has fooled them about something that touches their identity. That's a really hard problem. And, and it's gonna take us a long time to get out of that because you don't get out of it by yelling at them, you're idiots. Right, right. To find their own way out of that fog, tell themselves a story that lets themselves off the hook, doesn't admit they were wrong about anything and somehow allows them to see the world more clearly. The cool thing about America, cool, I, I mean that sarcastically, we've always had sort of a wing nuttery of about 30%. And so I'm yeah. not talking about healing the entire country. I'm talking about moving 42% back down to 30%. I think that'll happen slowly over time. Yeah, I, I saw, I looked at something, I think in polling, something like uh, a third of the country now identifies as Republican in polling. And if I, I forget what this is, maybe 60% of those people believe the vote was stolen. So you're dealing with uh, a significant, but still it's a minority part of the country if those polls are to be believed that are hardcore entrenched in that view, but still terrifying. By the same token, there's something going on with the left as well. And I sent you a, uh, a quote that I'd taken out of the New York Times. It was by a uh, professor at Williams. She said, the idea of intellectual debate and rigor as the pinnacle of intellectualism comes from a world in which white men dominate. I was really struck by that quote. And this was a big, this was beginning to emerge when I was in college, but it feels like it's gotten stronger. It's something that I've heard former Treasury Secretary Bob Rubin raise too. It's like, what are the core values we can agree on to teach in our universities where we're training the next leaders. Is that something that's caught your attention as well? And what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I, this is something else that Jonathan Rausch in his book addresses, because it's not just the Trumpist right. There is a strong anti-liberal, and I mean liberal in the traditional sense, wind blowing through elite corners of, of American life. I feel it at Columbia when people talk about abolishing the police and, and people nod meaningfully. And, right. and I wanna say, what? what, what? Then only the rich people have police. And have you asked the people who live in the hardest hit neighborhoods how they feel about that? But I don't say any of that because I can feel the wind. 
and and I'm just an observer at a particular gathering. And so, yeah, it's a real thing. I, I, I saw that quote before you sent it to me, and my reaction was, so what's the so what that follows that? There's no doubt that our way of reasoning and studying emerged in a world dominated by white men. But the sun has risen in the East for the last thousand years in a world dominated by white men. And so what follows from that? Should the sun right. not rise in the East? Should we deny that it rises in the East? Because it rose in the East while white men were in charge. Are you saying that there's something intrinsically wrong with that reasoning? And I don't hear that in the quote, that way of reasoning and finding truth. And so I don't know what to make of it. Yeah, it almost seemed that there's a merging of the person talking and the content of what they're saying that can't get divorced. And to me, I just look at the, like, what's the quality of the argument? A plus B plus C type of thing. But that seems to be not much. Yeah, show me, show me your reasoning. I'll listen to you with an open mind. Tell me, I, I was talking to a, an academic not long ago who was reluctant to share her views on a subject because it was about race and she was a white woman. Right. My reaction was, why wouldn't you share your view? Because people know you're a white woman and so contribute your voice. We don't pretend to be a black person, don't pretend to have a monopoly, but surely you have thoughtful things to say that would be useful in the public square. If you withhold those because of some concern about your own identity, we're all poor as a result. And so it's something to worry about. And, I, and that's why I thought it was important in this book, The Constitution of Knowledge, that we not just stare at the Trumpist right shutting down an exchange of views. It's happening in the most elite corners of our country. Have you seen experiments today in terms of weakening the power of the big lie that you think have been successful? It's too early for me to say. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the most important thing that can be done to weaken the power of the big lie is just to show people what good governance looks like, mm. what competent, honest leadership looks like. Again, because it's about them being able to tell themselves a story that allows them to emerge from the fog without ever admitting they were wrong. I mean, there will be a day, I, I, uh, I'm a great believer in Ray Dalio's philosophy that nearly everything is just another one of those. Yes. And when you look at the Joe McCarthy period, it's amazing how many people by the late 1950s were never there. Yeah. When Joe, when Joe McCarthy <laughs> stood astride our political scene from 1950 to 1954, McCarthy died shortly after he left office and nobody was involved. And I think we're going to see a similar phenomenon, but it's much harder today, given the size of the lie we face and to come back to where we started, the ability in our digital world for lies to make laps around the world and shape people who are already trapped in their own confirmation bubble. Part of the confirmation bubble in the United States, certainly in the Trump support, it seems to me it's an echo of really some of the same things that you saw in the Civil War, same racial issues coming up in different guises, and some of the aggrieved anger that Faulkner actually talks about. There's little hints of that on the one hand, and I read your speech that you gave at Georgetown when you were an FBI director. And on the other hand, this seems very much a global phenomena. There is Hungary, there is Le Pen, there is Bolsonaro, et cetera, et cetera. So let's segue a little bit to the international sphere. To what sense do you think that this thing, the, the, the sense of aggrievement and the lie is a U.S.-specific thing versus the international flavor of it? And then I want to get a little bit more to what your assessment now is of how these places run, given, given the unique perspective you've had. I think it's because it's a universal part of the human experience to be 
both tribal and afraid. And because we're all afraid, we're all anxious to one degree or another, that we cling to our tribe. And so that's, because that's a universal part of the human experience, every community is susceptible to the power of a lie, one that, that reinforces tribal identity and, it, and reduces the anxiety of those who identify with that group by telling them, you're the best, you're special, this other group is less than, and you should take pride in, and find um, security in your identity that we've seen it throughout human history. I think it's, it's, we have a particularly challenging time in the United States, given all the changes going on in our country, demographic, economic, philosophical, family-based, faith-based. A historian would tell you, you were destined What's your assessment of how these places run, specifically Russia and China, now, given your perspective and what you were looking at the analysis, and how influential do you think they've been? Russia, which you know better than I, Russia is a criminal enterprise at this point in time, led by a boss, a Cosa Nostra-type boss. My great worry for Russia will be in part what follows that. What is the succession Mm. plan for the Cosa Nostra boss? But it is... My assessment of Russia is it's dangerous because it's shrinking and um, in many ways dying. And so in order to, to, to create an identity, to organize around, to hold people around, it does things that are potentially dangerous. China, I see, is, and I'm, I'm no expert on either, but I see China as completely different. China as a rising power trying to figure out how much it can get away with, how far it can push the international system of norms and rules and totally different, thinks, again, as you know better than I, thinks very, very long-term. And so it was a different threat in that way. I used to think of the Russian threat as narrow and, and spiky. And the, the Chinese, the threat, national security threat from China is broad based, maybe not as deep, but broad based, coming at us through all kinds of vectors. And so you can't liken the two, in my experience. So the Russians had been trying to, if you, if you include the Soviet Union as the Russians, been trying to disrupt things here for a long, long time. And as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in DC and I remember it became a real thing during the AIDS epidemic a rumor began to circulate that this thing had been created by the CIA and particularly in the African-American community in Washington, D.C. proper, that thing took root. I mean, you would hear about it on radios, et cetera, and there wasn't any Google there. <laughs> like, Where did this thing come from? You just began to come out. And you were like, what on earth is going on? So they'd been trying that for a long period of time. Is our, are we just more aware of it now or were they more successful this time with Trump? It's probably a combination. There were two things that the Russians did in 2016. One, one that may have made a material difference. And the material difference piece was their active espionage and then release of documents to help one candidate and hurt the other candidate. And, and so in a narrow election, that might have made a difference. So that focused effort. The, the thing they did that they get lots of airtime about that I don't think made a big difference is their broader so division, try and get black people to hate white right. people. Look, 
I, I see that as peeing in the ocean. That is, yeah, they did that, but we do that so much more ourselves. We don't need the Russians to get black people and white people uh, to think differently about things and, and white people to resent black people and that, that we do that without that prompting. And so I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in, a, in an enormous Russian success in manipulating American public opinion in that regard. I do think there's an argument to be made that they're more narrow hacking and dumping was an important effort to help Donald Trump. That makes sense. One thing I've never been clear on reading it and not, not having ever worked in the intelligence services is when we're documenting what the Russians are doing, I would imagine, and to the degree Edward Snowden can be believed, there's a whole host of things we're doing too at the same time. Is that accurate? Or, or not? The U.S. government has a robust intelligence community engaged in the collection of intelligence around the world. And since the world now lives in a digital world as well as an analog world, we do a lot of collecting on systems and networks and clouds around the world. And a lot of that you throw us through the Snowden revelations. I was struck by, because I'm still bound not to talk about classified information, but I, okay. I, can, I can remember Jim Clapper, then the director of national intelligence, when it was revealed in the media that the Chinese had stolen an enormous database from the Office of Personnel Management of the Right, family. I remember reading about that. Yeah. And Clapper said, geez, basically, I don't know his exact words, but the gist of it was, you kind of got to admire that because if we could have done that to them, we'd have done it to them. Right. I think it's one of the reasons why there was such a miss in the U.S. intelligence community about the, what the Russians were going to do with what they hacked in 2015 and 16, that because we looked at it through the, the, the old mindset of this is intelligence collection. This is what nation states do. You want to know how the civil government organizations and the near civil government organizations of an adversary are thinking about the world. And so you hack in, you collect information, you try and understand it. What we missed was the turn that the Russians made from collecting all that information to trying to weaponize it. And I think it's because most people in the U.S. intelligence community never imagined that the Russians would do something that would be so easily exposed and such a dangerous thing to do in, a, well, in, in the United States in particular. And that weaponizing is not part of the U.S. strategy. That's harder for me to answer because I know there has been, because I led the FBI and so wasn't involved in foreign intelligence activities. Right. And but I know the history of the United States has involved active participation in trying to influence elections. And I think right. what Putin would say is, were you on your podcast, that one of the reasons I hated Hillary Clinton was I thought she had engaged in such an action when she was Secretary of State and she had fostered street demonstrations in St. Petersburg and elsewhere in 2011. Yeah. And I never forgot that. And so who are you to say? And so I've always thought of it as, I don't think there's a principle History wouldn't show the United States adheres to a principle that you can never try and influence another country's elections. It's a question about what will we allow you to get away with and what costs will we impose if you try and engage in influence activities. Right. When you're there, they will say that all the time, that the U.S. is doing this and even more. I just didn't know. I haven't seen conclusive evidence one way or another about where that lies, probably because the people who know can't talk about it. Well, But I think if, I, if I'm the Russians, I point to efforts uh, to influence elections in Afghanistan by having our leaders make public comments about Hami Karzai or to, to talk about what a bad guy Sistani is in Iraq. And, and that even our, even our international, international efforts to promote democracy 
are aimed at Belarus and Russia yes. and places like that. And so why isn't that interference in our elections? And it's, it's hard to say you're totally wrong. We can talk about degrees, but I don't think the U.S. has ever adhered to a principle that we will never do anything that might have an influence on some other country's election. Yep. And China, obviously, there's, I agree with you, a radically different system. And within that context of a different system, particularly, I would say, probably since you've left government, but even probably while you were there, that Xi Jinping was viewed as a very different leader than Zhao Ping up till Xi Jinping came to power. Was there a noticeable shift in strategy from your perspective when it came to the types of things that the FBI would have been worried about under Xi Jinping or not so much? Not so much. When I was first director, we were grappling with ways to try and change Chinese behavior when it came to cyber espionage and commercial cyber hacking. And the biggest challenge was trying to get the Chinese to understand that framework that I just used that, that we would say to them, look, nation states gather intelligence. Nation states do not steal stuff in order to aid private enterprise in their country. So we don't steal stuff to give it to Ford Motors so they can make a better engine. We will try and steal stuff so we can understand where your country is going. And to the Chinese, that distinction was foreign. There is no private enterprise. It's all us. Of course. <laughs> and so whether we steal, try and steal the designs for the Joint Strike Fighter or your your recipe for ultra-white paint at Pittsburgh Paints. It all benefits uh, the people of China. And so that's our mission. And so we spend a lot of time trying to get them to acknowledge that framework and change behavior as a result of it with limited success. Our biggest challenge with China was the breadth of their counterintelligence effort directed at us, right? The FBI is responsible for trying to identify those who are trying to steal our stuff, our ideas, our secrets, our intentions, and the Chinese came at us, the Russians came in a much more traditional way, your intelligence officer-based collection. So you're talking about, we gotta keep an eye on hundreds of people, and then people they may co-opt, and then there'll be a cyber element to that. The Chinese threat was actually smaller when it came to particular uh, professional intelligence officers, and an order of magnitude larger when it came to, to uh, co-optees. Thousands and thousands of students with an obligation to report and to collect. And, and how do we deal with that threat and maintain the nature and character of American universities, American uh, private enterprise, cooperation? How do we do that? It's a totally different challenge than that coming from Russia. If you were in the shoes of a political type, either on the left or the right or whatever, and they were assessing your behavior, if you try to imagine what their critique of your behavior would be in this, this unbelievably difficult situation that you were in, what do you think their critique would have been about how you might have navigated differently? I think it would be something like his, his view is too narrow. That is, we get his all this stuff about principles and values and yada, yada, yada. And, that, and I don't mean yada, yada, yada. It's important. <laughs> but he fails to consider the impact of knock-on effects on those very institutions he cares about. And so he derides the idea of considering political impacts, but, but that's a blinkering, that's a, that's a narrowing that prevents right. of the whole reality. sound decisions in the longer run. And so he's, he's a pain in the ass 
He's in love with his own righteousness and that righteousness forces him to look narrowly at hard problems. And we don't have that luxury here in and then fill in whatever the political office is, something like that. And what's your assessment on their critique? I get it. I mean, I, I, I think we're each limited by the roles we're in. That is, I used to struggle to talk to political people. It actually still happens today because they, they, can't, they can't understand decisions I made because their entire way of looking at the world is different. Right. They, they assume, I still run into people who assume I was out to get Hillary Clinton. Right. Because how could it be otherwise? You made a decision that I believe hurt Hillary Clinton. She so must have been out to get Hillary Clinton. And so it was almost like we were speaking languages that neither one understood. And, but the, the flip side of that is you don't understand what it means to lead the FBI, the Department of Justice, right. and what it is that helps those institutions stay foundational in the United States. And if I thought about things the way you do, I think I would do grievous damage to those. But again, I, again, I'm a creature, I'm trapped in my own perspective in a way. And so are they, which is why I try not to be, I try to be patient and understanding of people who see the world in a different way like that. So if I could, if I could tap the array for you, if you were to, out of the, the two books, the speeches you've given, et cetera, the podcast is called Things I Didn't Learn in School. So you certainly had an education well beyond what you could get at school. And I've read some of the different lessons you've said on integrity, et cetera. But if you, if you were to, on the spot, just deduce what are sort of your biggest takeaways uh, of the key things you've learned from these unbelievable experiences? That truly honest people are very, very rare. That is honest about themselves, about their biases, about facts, about the truly honest people are very, very rare. And it's probably the most important. And, and, and the second is the one we came back to because it's what allows, makes honesty possible. That, that humility is a, achieving humility is a journey without end, right? I guess the joy is in the trying, that it's so, so hard because I see the world, we all do through my own soda straw and finding ways to see the world as other people do and to and be patient enough to understand it is really hard. And those are probably my two lessons that they're, they're linked. And it's also this weird paradox that say, if you're humble, you work hard and then the work gets recognized, that very thing lays the seeds to weaken your humility. In other words, when you're down, it's easy to be hum humble. But if through being humble, you begin to succeed, the very success begins to jeopardize the humility. Yep. And maintaining that, especially when you're sitting in a world where people are kissing your butt all day right. long. So imagine you're a United States senator. It's, a, it's like being a federal judge. It's deeply warping yeah. because you're isolated. People tell you you're awesome all the time. Nobody really tells you the truth about anything, least of all about yourself. And if you manifest humility, say by admitting you're not sure about something or you were wrong about something, it will be used to bludgeon you so that you will lose this job that you love because people suck up to you and you get free food all the time. And so it, it's, it's a black hole and it's the rare, rare person who could be a federal judge or a United States Senator, one of these positions that you're, you're cut off and sucked up to all the time, really rare to find a truly honest, humble person. 
in in those kind of positions. Yeah, Obama said after he was after he became a senator, they said, "What changed?" And he goes, "I literally said the same things I've been saying all the time, but all of a sudden, everybody was telling." I'm paraphrasing, but basically, everybody was telling me how intelligent they were once I became a senator, and before that, hadn't been anything at all. Yeah, one of the things I, I never knew Barack Obama before I interviewed with him for FBI director, but one of the things I came to admire about him is both his sort of Niborian approach to public service yes. that it's always compromised that that the great danger is falling in love with my own righteousness and and that I need to constantly doubt 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 I know I'm going to have to trade pieces of my soul for a greater good but that's a transaction that can be blinding and especially when I'm in a position of power and so that trying to maintain that prophetic judgment on yourself was was really unusual and to my mind it, I hope is something that other people want to. Pre- I, I hope good people go into elected office, and that, that people remember that. That look at a Lincoln, the way he talked about his exercise of power and constantly doubting himself while still maintaining the strength to do hard things, and you see that in Obama and a very few others, but you don't see it much. Wonderful, thank you, Jim. You've been incredibly generous with your time. If you need anything else, just let me know and stay in touch. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.